everybody, welcome back to another episode of Stub Me Down. This is Skinny, and as always, I'm here with my best buddy, my friend, JW. JW, how are you? Say hello to the people. What up, Skinny? Hey, people. <laughs> nice. People are happy that you're saying hello to them. Want to talk about a great episode that we had last time and how proud I was to do that. There was so much knowledge that I got from that conversation with your dad. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to it. J-Dub had his dad on to talk about his career in music. And I think the final result is your appreciation and love for music. So shout out to Bill White. Thank you again. J-Dubs, I'm sure you were pleased with that conversation and anything you want to add to that? It was really cool, man, to be able to hear some of the stories from my dad. My dad is an amazing storyteller. He's got a ton of stories about so much and I've heard a lot of them, but I haven't heard all of them. So there were a couple of stories he told that I was not familiar with. So that was really cool. But just the experience of listening to how he talks about music, you know, at one point he was talking some of the technicals and talking about chords and the action was three eighths of an inch and stuff like that. And, and I know what he's talking about, but Listening to him with that technical perspective was very cool in a number of ways for me, but just to do something like this with my dad, to have the opportunity to include him in this podcast, you know, not only that, but dude, the first live music that I ever saw was my dad playing guitar in church at these local festivals when he was with that folk group that he talked about, Bittersweet, listening to him play every single night when I was a kid, laying in bed, trying to fall asleep. That had obviously a profound effect. So to get stubbed down by the first musician who I really have ever known, it was pretty cool. It was a fun experience. And uh, I'm grateful for you entertaining the experience. And I will tell you, he was very, very impressed by your preparation by your knowledge of the music that he talked about and just the way you comported yourself in that episode. He couldn't say enough nice things about you. So uh, nice job there. I know we were both nervous going into it and you killed it, man. So good job. Yeah. Hey, man, thanks for the compliment. I really appreciate that. I mean, I guess like when you're talking to people that you respect, it's really a lot, you know, it's a different type of conversation. So you do get a little nervous, a little jazzed up about, you know, what you're going to say and, you know, always do your research. I guess that'll help, you know, the conversation along a little bit. So yeah, props to your dad. It was a great conversation and I was happy to have it too, but. Fair number of people listen to that episode too. So pretty stoked. Yeah, that's definitely cool. And I love when people listen to these episodes because this is a little bit different um, in case you haven't picked up what we're putting down. We're continuing down this path of musical genealogy, where JW and I come from by like addressing a, a musical past. And both of us have a musical past. Today is going to be a little bit different because we're not going to talk about another person. We're actually talking about me. So <laughs> thank you for allowing me to be selfish, JW, <laughs> and connect these notes while I get to talk about myself. I love listening to you talk about yourself, bro. So like, how awesome is that? But we are bringing in a really great friend of mine. Friend of ours. Uh, yeah, that's right. It's Why do I always say that possessive pronoun mine? I'm like two years old. I'm two years old. But we're going to figure about my live music experience too, just like we did with Josh in, in our last episode, uh, where we connect those notes. And it is our next guest. So I guess what I'll start off with is my background. We talk a little bit about what we know about music. Um, and my background was really in choir. I went to CCD and then, of course, my mother made me join the choir. So I was in St. Thomas More Choir and then Cathedral Choir. And my mom made me take violin at Peabody. And all I ever wanted to do was play the drums, but she wouldn't let me have a set. I remember in eighth grade, I had a, a small snare drum, which I played in band and you know, you're playing stuff that you're not really into. I mean, Little Drummer Boy, I can't remember what those set lists were from those like musical shows that you would put on for parents at a school. But that was like the last time I, I had something musical in my hands for quite a while. And then 
I wanted to be in Van Halen. Obviously, that didn't happen. <laughs> Fast forward to high school, and then I got into the Grateful Dead and music, you know, meat and potatoes rock with Beatles and Led Zeppelin and Stones and Pink Floyd. And then you start to get a little bit out there. There was another part of my formation that happened probably in my high school years that was beyond listening to jam band music, specifically talking about the Grateful Dead and going on tour. And we're going to talk a little bit today about a place and a time. Traditionally, we take a look at a concert, but these special episodes, we've been taking a look at the stub down from a little bit of a different perspective and bringing in some guests who are stubbing us down on their musical experience. Of course, as Skinny mentioned earlier, this is a story in which he is one of the primary, well, he is the primary character in the story. I was really just a periphery character in my origin story. So, so yeah, the depiction can only be told with our next guest, Michael Bornshore, great friend, brother, fellow bandmate, actually known to us and many others as B-Man. What up, stub down boys? We are going to be stubbed down by B-Man today and learn a little bit about B-Man's role and influence in Skinny's musical development and evolution. We've collected many memories with he and his wife and a thousand friends over the years. It's great to have you here. I'm really excited to talk to you today. You know, like we said in that last episode, we talked about somebody else's journey and how that journey influenced somebody, specifically Josh. And in this time, we're talking about me, but we also are going to talk about how you influenced my musical journey and my musical experience. And that really all starts with one place. And that place is Wyatt's. And we're going to kind of get into this conversation about what that place meant to you, how that place started. B-Man, how are you today, my friend? I'm doing good. B-Man, are you ready to stub us down? Oh, man. I'm stubbing down or you're getting stubbed down? I hope I'm qualified. We'll see about that. <laughs> In all seriousness, it's awesome to have you here. I couldn't be happier to have you on. And I hope that you sling a little bit of dirt here about my co-host. You go back to the 80s with this guy and... Long way. It is a long way. And I am sure that there might be a story or two that you got rattling around that I have not heard yet. So be ready to sling that dirt. Today's the day. Absolutely. Thanks for being here, man. We're, we're, we're grateful to have you on. Hey, man. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thanks. B-Man knows Josh really well. Um, we've all kind of collectively come together as a group of people that have different interests, but have the same heart and are, are very influential to each other and very good friends. But tell us about why it's the place where I spent a ton of my <laughs> youth prior to being 21, but also <laughs> after that formidable birthday, as it were. So can you just give us a sense of where Wyatt's is located, what it was all about and how you, you know, connected to that place, which uh, Mike and his wife, Chris, actually live in Wyatt's. So it's so weird to walk in there when I visit, which we haven't done in so long. Every guy's dream to live in a bar. Yeah, yes, it is every guy's dream to live in a bar, and Michael literally does. But it's not a, it's not a working bar anymore. Just give us a little sense of what that place was like, how you kind of came to be connected to it. It'd be great just to get a little bit of history of that place, because for me, it's it's got a great history, but I would just like for people out there to get connected to it a little bit. Yeah, Wyatt's is uh, located the north end of Fells Point. I made my way here in the late 80s, 87, 88, I guess, right when I met you, man. Remember? Bennigan's. Yeah, I do. I do, man. It was a long time ago, but I remember. I remember. Skinny was bussing table at Bennigan's, man. Jesus. I think you were 17, 18 at the time. 
I, I was. I was. That was the long string of restaurant industry jobs. I know. <laughs> That's where I met you. And then what what was the joint like prior to you being connected to it and involved with it? And then how did that evolve? Well, then it was just just a neighborhood, actually, mix of gay community people and straight and just a local neighborhood bar, you know, otherwise in the gay community known as the Wyatt. The Wyatt. I mean, I did, I remember going there at, at a very young age and it was a bar in transition. You know, it was a local bar. It was not something that was down on the middle of the Fells Point Square, which even back then didn't necessarily mean too much in the late 80s. Not until the Fells Point Festival, really, and all those times had kind of kicked that market over to a place where people really wanted to hang out. I mean, it was a rough place prior to that in the 70s. So we're talking about a place that has been around for 50 years. Well, yeah, and then and almost was wiped out by the I-95 expansion. And Barbara Mikulski, if you're a fan of Baltimore history, you know that's how the Fells Point Festival got started was because of that. But it had it had kind of an underground celebrity. I mean, I remember one late night as you were closing up when you were bartending when John Waters came in. So it's not like, you know, there weren't certain people that didn't know about it. And, and it was. It was kind of a little bit of a juke joint. What I remember, too, was it had the greatest jukebox in the Fells Point area, which was kind of hard to get because it was usually somebody's blaring Bon Jovi. No offense. <laughs> <laughs> I was getting exposed, Josh, to stuff that I hadn't heard that was more progressive and that wasn't necessarily something that I would have chosen to listen to at the time until I got exposed to it through B. Right. Yeah, I actually took that inspiration from Club Chuck up on Charles Street, Club Charles. Talk about John Waters. He's frequented that bar. I don't know if he still does, but he made his way here a few times. But yeah, they uh, definitely gave me the inspiration for the jukebox here with uh, new wave, you want to call it that, post-punk, you know, bands like The Clash, Ramones, Misfits, Dead Kennedys. Well, that's actually punk. We want to go post-punk. It was a it was a blend of everything, though. It was a really eclectic jukebox for sure. And I do remember the Club Chuck one as well. How did music get started as a, a live entertainment performance other than, you know, people just putting in songs on a, an eclectic jukebox. How did that all get started? I think a friend of my mother's, Mark Brine, who was big in the local music scene here, came in and wanted to play. We put him up in the corner with a guitar, you know, and it snowballed from there. As soon as he played, we just wanted to do live music from then on. After he had played, was it, Kind of more like a, you wanted to bring people in on more days a week to get that live music experience. Were you, what were you attracted to? I should say about that. Definitely wanted to bring in more people to the bar. And we thought that might be the best way to go about it since we were just a bar, you know, no kitchen, no food, just beers and shots. So let's do music. Yeah. And sometimes it is that simple, right? J Dub? It certainly can be, especially in Baltimore, where there are some of those types of music venues where you're going to get a couple drinks and you're going, you don't care necessarily who's even performing, right? It's just live music. It's a weekend. It's a time to be out. And Baltimore has a great feel. And this is from somebody that's, I've certainly not been around Baltimore as long as either of you guys, but it does have that feel where you can go into any number of bars, grab a beer and sit back and listen to anything from dude with guitar to full band rocking out. And that becomes the attraction, you know, and it doesn't even matter who's playing, but if it's live music, there's a certain vibe and a certain energy that goes along with that. And Baltimore's a good town for that. Definitely. Definitely. We, uh, from Mark Bryan, we searched and who's bringing in the most people. So enter Kevin Scott. You know, he was the only one actually playing the new wave, what they want to call, you know, new wave, modern English, the jam, Nick Lowe, New Order, you know, R.E.M., a lot of that music. He was the only one 
and he had a huge following. So I don't know. We tempted him, to, tempted him to come up here, and he did. It seems like that was the beginning and of why it's being put on the map, so to speak. And so he he would drag a crowd with him. Then he's coming in. Yes, we we definitely relied on bands to bring a crowd with them. We, you know, we had our local crowd, but needed you know a little more than that. Yeah, that local crowd needed a little bit of. Uh... <laughs> youth injection <laughs> especially after about 5 30 or so six o'clock you know from what i remember and i do remember seeing kevin play at i believe admiral's cup which is for any baltimore natives all the way down at the corner of fells point the end of broadway and, and thames i remember him playing down there and he had a sick crowd i mean it was packed but admiral's cup was not a very big joint at all it couldn't have been bigger than wyatt's not that front bar anyway they're about the same size and i mean it would be wall to wall if you remember it down there too he had a really good crowd yeah and he played like that old rem he played like you're saying that progressive post-punk music that you didn't really hear guys play i mean dylan and that kind of stuff you know does that that sounds about right what i remember yeah that was it that was definitely it. Uh, yeah, Kevin was a good guy. He, We definitely had to pay him to come up here. He didn't come up here because he wanted to. <laughs> you know, again, we were on the edge of Fells Point, Admiral's Cup, and the horse, and that, you know, they had foot traffic. We had none, so. Yeah, the location of Wyatt's is a little off the beaten path in Fells Point, so that makes it a little bit more of a kind of like a niche location. I don't want to say underground, but you have to know about it in order to end up there. Yeah, it was it was definitely a destination spot. I have been in Wyatt's when it was closed, but there was still the bar in there. Not a very big space, real long bar, couple of corner spots, but it was not a large bar if you've been to baltimore it's a you know maybe a 15 wide row home in fells point upper fell well not upper fells but kind of mid fells point um so it's not huge you want to describe a little bit about how that was set up for concerts or, or for live music performances i wish there were concerts <laughs> we would have made more money <laughs> Maybe, maybe they were in my head. I don't know. But it was, a, yeah, about 15, 16 foot wide joint. You know, the bar ran the length of the front room here. Probably between the bar and the bar stools people sitting on to the wall where the bands played was, I don't know, 10, 11 feet. So the band took up, you know, squeezed them in there at about three or four feet, tried to. So, you know, they're right in your face. It's funny because I remember those days where, yeah, they're they're all like kind of huddled around you. People are kind of even in a word like bumping up against you uh, as you're like playing and trying to have a little bit of room. But it was it was nuts to butts in there, man. There was no way you were going to be able to have room. Yeah. If you had spatial issues, forget about it. (laughs) I did not. But it was intimate. It led to a lot of good uh, music and good times. Yeah, and that's what I remember is is the people. What kind of crowd were you getting back then? I mean, I remember. I, I just wanted you to share, like, what was the mix? Once the music started coming in and more new people were coming into the bar, what was the crowd scene like? I guess they were, you know, a lot like myself, a little younger back then, of course. Uh, they liked the post-punk new wave music and liked it loud and... That's what we gave them. You know, that led to you guys actually having to reconstruct the venue in and of itself. Right. Which led to some tear out. Describe how what you needed and, and what you wanted for that. Yeah, it did get packed that we were, came to figure out, you know, let's make some more room for the band where where we saw uh, where we could put them was where the actual bathrooms were. So we tore those out relocated and built the stage so it was actually at the end of the bar not right in the middle of the bar so that was a big help making things more comfortable for patrons and the bands so you got a packed house a great band playing 
It's, you know, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. How many people you got in there? As far as the fire department is concerned, 60. <laughs> but probably, I don't know, it, it maybe 85. We roughly counted sometimes. That's a lot of people for that space. Oh, it's shoulder to shoulder. Smoking was permitted. So this place was a cloud of smoke, shoulder to shoulder, drunks. And I mean, the band blaring. Yeah, it was loud. Neighbors, they didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. It, it was so loud, you know, as one bartender and, and maybe sometimes two from, you know, the variety of bartenders or Mike that would be back there. Like you could barely hear what people wanted. It was more like hand signals and semi four or whatever to, to get a drink there. I do remember though, you, you used to sling them. I mean, B-Man was a great bartender too, which was always cool to have a friend that was the bartender and the owner of the actual bar. <laughs> help me, help me out a lot. Yeah. Oh yeah. Plus knowing, knowing what everybody drank, I, you know, we really didn't even have to communicate orally. <laughs> a little head nod and all of a sudden it would appear in front of you. So you were, so you're the owner, the head bartender. I got to believe you were also a frequent performer at Wyatt's. Tell us a little bit about that. Definitely. Uh, Kevin Scott, we, we just talked about, I just showed him I could play guitar and I was interested in what he's doing and... He just gave me a shot to play with him, as simple as that. I was like, good Lord, I started practicing my ass off all day long just to try to keep up. How do you sleep so sound at night? Wishing you were free and far from probably couldn't pick Kevin Scott out of a lineup if he was wearing a name tag that said Kevin Scott. So tell us a little bit about, I mean, is he writing originals? What kind of music is he creating? What would that be comparable to somebody like me who doesn't know shit about most of that? I know who Morrissey is. When I was depressed in college, I would listen to his stuff, but <laughs> Vauxhall and I was like a pillow that I could snuggle, you know? <laughs> anyway, I digress. <laughs> but what, what kind of music was Kevin Scott playing? What kind of music were you playing? And what did you learn, whether it was style or, or anything like that from, from that experience? Just learned a lot of different tunes. Yeah, he definitely was, the majority of his tunes were covers and he had a bunch of originals that he would play. Skinny played with him on the Kungas. He knows. It was you know, mostly covers, but he threw his originals in, but we would actually play out at eight by 10 or maxes. Then it was all original music. What were some of like the staples that you guys played that he brought to the table? Radio Free Europe was definitely a staple. All that old REM. What album is that, Mike? You know, I'm not really good with that stuff. Oh man. Green's where I left off. But yeah, he's playing Tears for Fears and like I said earlier, Nick Lowe. Ramones. Yeah, Ramones, Modern English, all that. A lot of 80s music, a lot of 80s music in there. Yes, yes. But again, though, no one else was doing it around town. That was the draw. That's what turned me on to it. Still liking bands like even though i was super into the grateful dead at that point and really trying to draw my attention to that i was listening to the clash and echo and the bunnyman and old cure which is good cure 
definitely listening to a lot of REM. 10,000 Maniacs came on the scene. There was just such like an abundance of these weird bands. And I don't want to say weird in the way that like they're not relatable because they completely are. They were relatable to me. I just had this other focus. I mean, we used to go to B-Man's house who uh, subsequently his house was behind the bar and we would go over there afterwards, you know, late nights from two to four or whatever, listening to those Polk audio speakers and all that stuff B-Man had. A CD player back then, and Mike had a five changer, was like, what is this new technology? Like, it's spun around, and like you could program it to play like your favorite cuts. And I just remember hanging out there, like even during the day before B had to go to work or whatever, and he just blare that stuff out of the house. So that turned me on to this whole other genre of music. And, and I was always attracted, too, to like pop or even sub pop, you know, after that and progressive music. I mean, years later, there was a guy. Can I, I'm sorry. What the fuck is sub pop? I know pop. What the fuck is sub pop? <laughs> sub pop is like Iggy Pop and like weirder bands that you would listen to. It. I was going to go on this place called Signal, where they would have like just this underground type of music that you had never heard before. I mean, it's a good question. I don't really know what it is either. <laughs> I mean, you stumped me. I hang out with B-Man. He talks about indie music all the time. And I know back before John Mayer was a thing with Grateful Dead music, B-Man was like a big John Mayer. Yeah, exactly. But that kind of goes along with some of your other musical tastes. So like... For the record, no, I was not a John Mayer fan. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I thought... Sounded good. What wasn't he in a band? The, what band was he in before he was in the Cranberries? Was he in the Cranberries? I don't think so, dude. <laughs> we have derailed. <laughs> he plays in the dead. That's the thing. I know. That's the thing. He played in one of your jam bands. I think he can totally shred, and he plays the Grateful Dead guitar parts very well, but he can't sing for shit. The Grateful Dead tunes. Yeah, I'm sure he's one of your guitarists. Actually, you know what? I do love John Mayer, and he is a very underrated guitarist. I mean, I, I'm not crazy about some of his music, but he he rips it. I'm not going to sit here and tell you who's going to take John Mayer. It ain't going to be me. I don't I don't know how we I guess this was my fault. Sorry, guys. I fucked it up. <laughs> no, nah, no, nah, it's fine, man. I love that kind of stuff. I think that's we need JW is not hosting. So he's freewheeling over here <laughs> about John Mayer of all people, of all people. Sorry, John Mayer. Sorry. We had our own, uh, you remember, Snake Oil Skin Man. There was a huge jam band here in the neighborhood, or not the neighborhood, the city, and they came here. Yeah. We'd had them in here once a week. Oh, God, they packed the place. Yeah, Snake Oil was around for a while, too, and, it, and they played Wyatt's for a while. I want to say it was like a maybe like a Wednesday or Thursday night they had that. Oh, no, they were here on Saturday. They were, they were the big show. It was Saturday? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they had at least a once a month or maybe even twice a month gig, I'm sure, right? Oh, easily a couple times a month, yeah. Yeah, so Snake Oil was playing some other big venues too, and we did great because, you know, I had the opportunity even with my limited skill to play the 8x10, and then we played Preakness Festival one time where, you know, we opened up for Great Train Robbery with the Marshall Brothers, which was another band that I played, and Greg Bashirs. There's been some guys and girls. That was a big uh, that was a big happy hour spot downtown Water Street. Right. And we played in front of a lot of people. So whether they were listening or not, I don't know. But we were playing. And there were there were a lot of them. <laughs> chompers in every crowd, B-Man. There's chompers in every crowd. <laughs> Sometimes they listened, I think, more than they talked. But, you know, who knows? It was It's all haze. I do remember it was humbling at first. You know, you pick up something and you... You try to make sure that like you're doing the right thing by the other person, especially a musician. I mean, when I was um, at Wyatt's and in Fells Point, I remember being a tryhard a little bit. And I wanted to make sure that people knew that I was like, I took it seriously, even though I, I didn't take everything else seriously. I was taking that seriously and I was trying to be better. So I, I, I do remember being Ixnade from a bunch of bands. You know, I played with the Marshall Brothers for a while. I remember, you know, Mike Beach, my good friend from high school, 
they used to undercut me on the money, but plenty of drummer jokes about how much money they deserve and gigs they were getting, or you're not really helping the band. (laughs) (laughs) Is that why you sometimes question whether Fishman is underrated or overrated? I just feel his pain. (laughs) I feel Fishman's pain and that, and he's so good, but you know, I wasn't even close to having the talent somebody like fish does, but I, I did take it seriously and we were playing a lot of gigs. And I think for me, I don't know if you remember this one, B man, when we played at eight by 10, I was like, not I've made it, but I was like, wow, I'm actually playing on a stage in Baltimore where some really national acts have played. So in a sense, have I made it? Maybe not, but in a way in my own musical experience in history, being up on that stage with you right on. You shared the same stage that Fish has played on if you've played the 8x10. So I would say that that's pretty close to making it. Yeah, we used to have a tape of that. I don't know whatever happened to that. I wish I could find that. Yeah, that's definitely a proud moment in my musical experience. And I was really happy to do all those things. And even when you got kicked out of the band, you kind of picked yourself up and you were like, hey, yeah, I'll play. I was always that guy. I was always the guy that was like, if you're playing and you need somebody to play percussion, even if you think it's half-assed or I'm just some guy that has like quick hands or whatever, okay. At first it was, it was humbling, but I stuck with it. I don't play anymore, but I mean, you know, I can tap on my desk. (laughs) There's been some people that have played at Wyatt's Mike. So beyond some of that foundation, like Kevin Scott, and then we started playing, like what are some other names that used to play there? Snake Oil was obviously one that you named. Love Riot. They were huge. I mean, they might've at one time been the best band in town easily. They actually went to Japan for a worldwide best new, I don't know, indie pop band. I mean, I don't know where what place they came in, but it was a pretty big deal to go all the way over there. And our friends, the Marshall Brothers, Greg Bashirs, Mike Beach. Greg, he, uh, he ended up playing bass with Rhett Miller of the old 97s. Right. We saw him play on uh, Jay Leno Tonight Show a couple times, I think. Oh, nice. And then another guy that was one of these the group of guys that went to Towson State at the time, Jason Arducci, Dooch. I mean, he's playing with Bob Mould. Is that correct? Yes. He made his way to, with Bob Mould on the bass. Uh, he's still doing that. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about not just guys that were playing for a couple bucks on the weekends. We're talking about real musicians that... Headliners. Yeah, man. Yeah, and then stepped into different roles in different scenes. Love Riot, Rhett Miller, those are kind of different music genres. I mean, I I don't know much about either, but I know they're not. You probably would know Bob Mould if you heard a couple of his more popular tunes. Not everybody was in this same musical spectrum. Like, it was kind of across the board, it sounds like. Right. No, we, we didn't just stick to, you know, like I said, we got our start with the music and the new wave. From there, all bands were welcome. We had jazz night every Wednesday, like it or not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, jazz night was, and then some dude, I remember for a couple weeks there, I don't know how long it was, man, dude brought his own stand-up piano and then carted that thing up on the stage. It was like- That was open mic night. Yeah, okay, that was open mic night, but I just remember like, dude, really, you're gonna bring a piano down here? Like, I mean, it's it, it's just crazy. I know. And I got to help? What are we doing? Yeah, right, right. Right. I'm barely working as it is, and now you want me to help. <laughs> nah, I, I appreciated the enthusiasm. I, you know, I love it. Dutch Nachowski, who, you know, he came in and did sound for us at one point, you know, was just kind of hanging out and helping us out. You know, I got to work HF Festival If you're a 90s kid, you might remember, and I worked 97, 98, 99 was at M&T Bank Stadium, you know, where the Ravens play. But I I got to meet and be on stage and be part of his crew, which was amazing. And he's the sound guy for Keller Williams, who's a pretty big name on the jam band scene. There was also Kevin Kadish, who came out of there, too, who was an open mic nighter. 
I think that's when Jimbo, our buddy Jimbo, was running the place, Little J Productions. Kevin Kadish has uh, wrote some pretty popular tunes, so he's doing well. I think he lives in Nashville, according to Jimbo. I think he still talks to him. So there's a lot that came out of that. We can circle back to this genesis of Wyatt's and how it began and what my musical influence was, but also how it influenced a lot of other people. You know, here we are today talking about it. It's just, it's an amazing thing to do. It's crazy. The feeling that you get from a local small town corner bar, especially in Baltimore, and for anybody that has spent any time in any of those types of places in Baltimore, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's real tight packed. Everybody's jammed up against the bar, four deep, even hugging the wall. You can't even get around to the bathroom. It's packed in there, but you don't want to be any other place on those nights when you've got blaring music and that energy and that vibe. And from everything you guys have talked about, about why it's going back the 20 years I've been friends with you guys, I've always gotten that feel. And I've been in plenty of bars in Baltimore like that, even though I was never at Wyatt's. I feel like I kind of experienced that feeling just in other places. That's local, that's homegrown music. And that's in a lot of cases where most of us first saw live music and in your guys' cases, you know, performed live music, you know, skinny. I mean, you know, that's one thing we haven't really talked about on this show is your actual performance of music. We've talked about the shows you've gone to and stuff, but you never talked about playing the Congos and your experience as a musician. That's an important part of what we're doing here. Yeah, man. I, that question humbles me because I, I don't know how much of a performer I was, <laughs> but I will say that I, I tried. I remember playing bongos for Kevin Scott. I guess as a white boy, I had enough rhythm to kind of keep pace with some of the stuff that he was doing. I mean, he was playing like Ramones and like the Smiths. I mean, he wasn't playing stuff that I even necessarily was like, oh, I love this. I just could catch up. What of the music from back then still stands out to you that, you know, maybe sparks some memories or that you flip through your record collection and you're like, oh, let me throw this on from the Wyatt's days. What, whether it's bands or specific songs, do you still go back to now as a form of nostalgia or it's just, you know, songs that still hit you the right way? You know, I'm always moving on to the newest and next thing, but I don't really go back then, listen to my albums as often as I should. If when I put one on, put New Order on still, Modern English, Zeppelin, whatever, you know, as I flip through, grab it. You know, we worked together. You know, I remember I was heavy into U2. Uh, I saw that Joshua Tree tour at RFK. It's a huge show. Echo and the Bunnymen and The Clash. Depeche Mode. I mean, there were other things in the 80s that I was listening to. I, I mean, I was living the 80s, but also I had interest in The Grateful Dead and following that train and being a part of that too. 
I was diversifying. <laughs> I'll, I'll say that I was diversifying, and, and B Man was a big influence in my diversifying my musical. I don't know headspace. I, I can listen to anything still. I can today. B Man's got a pretty sick vinyl collection too, having flipped through it on numerous occasions. So you got maybe a little bit more of a recency bias as far as like what's current. You know, if you hit play on your. I don't even know the names and titles of songs anymore. I just download them and I love them. With the Shazam and the easy download, it's you, you don't get an album and sit there and just jam the whole thing over and over again and read the front, the back, the cut, you know. It's just so easy to grab a tune and download it, put it on your playlist. That's fair. Tell you the truth. Sound like a millennial. Man, I don't know. It's such a completely different world you know, as far as music consumption is, Skinny and I have talked about this in previous episodes of Stub Me Down. Man, there's just so much out there that you want to listen to. Thousands of Grateful Dead shows and Fish shows and Phil and Friends shows and all these different live performances that are recorded. And then you also have albums and new music coming out all the time. And me, especially, I'm a little bit pigeonholed in what I listen to. I try to break out of it. Thank God for my wife. She keeps me somewhat engaged as far as the other music that's going on but i also really don't like a whole lot of stuff so uh i mean i have a respect for obviously a variety of different music and as i said you know you guys talking about some of this stuff in the late 90s early 2000s you know this was this was a few years ahead of me as far as like music on the age spectrum but there was still plenty here that I was absorbing myself and U2 and and those types of bands were definitely in my CD shuffle. Okay. B had a very eclectic collection of music even for then. B was not pigeonholed into one necessarily artist or, or album. It was so much that I was kind of digesting which I felt was weird for me because, well, it wasn't weird. It was great because I was seeing all sides of everything. So even if nowadays when I talk to kids about music, I feel like it gives me a, enough of a, I don't know, an ability or a forte to be able to talk with them about it and not be less judgy and, and be more open to things that are different. You might not necessarily like it, but you, know, you can find something that you don't like with even the bands that we glom onto. So, you know, I think that's important. I think that's part of what having B on explains. Like, I was pretty open to especially music. I mean, I loved it. So, I had heard a lot, but um, I was open to hearing a lot, lot more. And I have, I've, I've continued on that path. So, talking about connecting some dots there, J Dub. I live in a bubble, B man. You know, I listen to like two fish shows a day, bro. I don't have a whole lot of room for other stuff. <laughs> that, that's the thing for me, B and Josh, is that you've always had this other plane, and I, it's not necessarily like putting yourself on some sort of pedestal musically, but for me, my influence from you is you're always finding these other ideologies, these other things about music, whether I like it or not, is not necessarily the issue. I think it's, <laughs> it's great that you, you have that headspace where you just continue to search. You're taking everything in musically and it's just such a pleasure to have had that history with you, man. It brings up a lot. There's a lot to talk about J-Dub. <laughs> we don't have to. We've been friends for 20 years, and you've known B-Man for another 15 before that. And those are formidable years. Obviously, your musical exposure, and obviously, I know you have a big brother, but in the similar vein as Joe and Jason and you were to me during the younger years of my life when I was hanging out with older people, I have an older brother. He's a musician. He has mostly great taste in music. I learned a lot from some of his interests. So I can respect it on both angles, but there's also that being exposed to things that you weren't exposed to before. That's pretty cool. Uh, that's what we're trying to do here. That's what Stub Me Down is. It's taking a closer look at something from a different perspective than B-Man offers a different perspective from a different time. As you said at the outset, this is a story about a place and a time and your connection to that and, and how that planted the seeds or 
maybe didn't plant the seeds, but helped nourish those seeds that had already been planted, taking a look at specific bands and music. And I, I don't listen to a lot of the things that I listened to when I was, you know, in my late teens. I mean, there's a couple of things, but it doesn't mean I still don't have an appreciation for it. And I think that that's kind of what this is all about here. And Mike is offering a really great perspective on that, considering the role that it played in your life, Skinny, you know? What can I say? I mean, I feel like those probably 10 years, it seems like it was 10, Mike, I could be off. That's all we did. I mean, we did we did a lot of music. B-Man, you got to give us some dirt on Skinny. There's one story I definitely need you to tell, and that's the birthday party that your mom threw for him. But we need a little bit of skinny late 80s, early 90s. There can be no repercussions because it was so long ago, 30 years ago, dirt. I want it. I want to blast it to all the stubby downers out there. But first of all, start with this. Skinny was 21 for like eight years, birthday party story. Well, you know, he, like I said, I met him, what, 17, 18? I'm not sure what it was. Whatever. He started hanging. It was like, all right, cool. You can hang. Just don't bring your posse with you, whatever, your crew. I don't know, but just you. So here he comes. If it's just him, you can pass. All right, he's 20. He'll be 21 soon, mom. Relax. And, and now here comes August and she gets, you know, oh, it's his birthday. Oh, God. Good, good, good. Finally, he's 21. So here comes Tish. Birthday cake, candles, the works. Happy birthday to you. Everybody's singing along in the bar. And, you know, it was great for me. I don't care. Any day that, you know, everybody's buying his beers that day. So if I don't have to, good. <laughs> But anyway, he turned 21 that year. Here comes the next year. My mother, you know, she finds out, oh, he didn't turn 21? Oh, Michael. <laughs> and so comes his, uh, August again. Well, you know, he is 21 this year, Mom, for sure. But don't make a thing of it. Nope. Here comes the cake, the candles, repeat. I mean, all the same people and everybody. <laughs> the singing, happy birthday, the beers bought for him. Oh, my God. So, you know, everybody gets a laugh at that one. All right, he's 21. That's funny. Next year. Nope, not 21. Here comes the cake, the candles, the same people. Big Mama, Jerry Howell, Jimmy Carter, Sammy, all the locals buying his beers again. <laughs> happy birthday. So happy 21. It was at least three years in here. It was great. <laughs> That's amazing. That is, might be one of the greatest fake birthday stories I've ever heard. <laughs> that it was. Uh, that's funny, man. That tradition continued for a little while. I would always like, you take somebody to a restaurant, you would just tell the waiter to like, it's their birthday, even though it wasn't. And birthday pranks are fun. That's good times. Dude, I miss your mom. That's so funny. Uh, I mean, just like even working there, like natural lights and ice. You had to put ice in the glass and she was always checking on you because you had to make sure her ice was filled up to the top. <laughs> man, good times, man. That is funny. I was 21 for like eight years. I think I'm going to do the same thing with 50, Josh. <laughs> I'm not giving you another 50th birthday present this year. <laughs> That's fine. I'm good. I'm good. I'll only turn 50 once. I remember, Skinny, when you were living above that place, and this was when we were first friends in 99, 2000, and you were living above Wyatt's. And I, I think at that time, you were still even open on the weekends, or you might have been closed altogether at that point. But I remember going up to your apartment on you know a number of occasions, and I remember we were hanging out there late night one night, you had a set of congas that got ripped off from your apartment by some of the late night revelers that were with us. And that was a whole big to do. We knew exactly who did it. And there ended up being like a, a sit down in the, in the inner harbor to get them back. And that kind of bridged the gap from your musical career into our friendship, which I always think fondly of being part of the crew that went to retrieve the congas that night. Well, you know, what's funny about that is it just reminds me of how important that 
time was. If any musician out there has ever gotten their stuff stolen, you know how much it pisses you off. So there were huge threats. <laughs> there was a sit down. And then later on, they were returned. <laughs> so, yes, I do remember that story. It was not a fun story to remember. But I mean, now it's kind of like, yeah, threaten those guys. <laughs> they return that shit. But anyway, they did return it. I still have them. Well, one of them. The other one I won't talk about. But anyway, I still have one of them. And it's just, you know, it's important to you. It does connect me back to a time, a place, and many, many memories. And I, I got to tell you, it's been so good to talk to you about this, B, because I think it really puts a stamp on where I came from. We talk about it a lot. I, I'm a Baltimore boy. And part of that experience growing up in Fells Point with you and, and so many other friends and so many people that went in and out of there that we... We don't even see anymore or hear from anymore, maybe some stories here and there. But uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you're ever or at Wyatt's, you know, don't forget to like hook up with us and, and shout out to J-Dub and I so that we can tell B-Man about your experience. It, it was so much fun. And, and it really, I think, tells me, you know, who I am as a person, but also helps me remember why I love live music. Uh, and one of those reasons was because I got an opportunity for a long time to play alongside you and, and, and have so much fun. Definitely. Something's going on, a change is taking place. Children smiling in the streets have gone without a trace. The streets used to be full, they used to make me smile. Now it seems that everyone is walking single file. And many about their ends in shame that used to He is. I mean, he, you know, he's a distinguished elder, you know, he, he gets to the point and moves on to the next. Well, I thought this was going to be all about the skin, man. Right. Well, you, you were the witness to the uh, metamorphosis, as it were. All of it. I appreciate this little bit of a window into where Skinny came from. Of course, I've heard some of these stories over the years. I've been to the scene of the crime, although it was years after the crimes had occurred. It's like visiting Ford's theater now. <laughs> like that analogy. I think the one thing that I will take away from this is Skinny's view of music has not been solely focused on what we have generally focused on in Stub Me Down's show history. Fish, Grateful Dead related. Obviously, that is a primary source of enjoyment for him, but he wasn't telling me about playing Fire on the Mountain with you guys at Wyatt's. He was playing much different music with a much different sound, with a much different history, and with a much different fan base. And to go from that to the Grateful Dead and Fish, I think what it does is it shows this kind of collective appreciation for what is out there and also a little bit of a respect for hey i i went into this place i learned about this type of music it was pretty cool and i met yeah i'm not sure love of the music was the main inspiration there for the skin man you know got a lot of attention and a lot of women because of this 
<laughs> now we're talking. I'm sorry, Amy. <laughs> Josh is going to have to. <laughs> I am not editing that out. Get out of here. That's fucking gold. What else you got, V? Come on, man. Lay it on me. Nah, man. You know what? It might not be musical appreciation. There's camaraderie. There's being in a place during a time. I mean, we started off this episode talking about this really being a story of a place in time. It's not necessarily about the music, but the music was the linchpin. Definitely. B, you and I have talked on me, and I can't even think about how many occasions we're not necessarily fans of the same thing as far as what what you know what's going to come up when we hit play but there's definitely a shared appreciation you got that killer sound system in your place too so i, I always enjoyed that oh thanks yeah b always had a killer sound system so that's not true too by the way what he's telling you josh it's like i <laughs> i mean i don't want to you know sounds like a duck <laughs> Guess what? <laughs> it's going to be a lot more chores after this episode. Anyway, <laughs> but I did have an appreciation for the music. I, I think he helped me with that, actually. And I think a lot of the musicians that I played with, um, whether we had to eat crow and, and play Brown Eyed Girl a thousand times over the summer, or we played something completely different or original, um, I did have an appreciation. I wanted to work harder to get better at playing it. Since I had such a limited role, I mean, they just one day, I think, handed me a set of bongos and then I started trying it and I wasn't very good, but I kept at it and played with so many people, plus got fired from so many bands, like, you know, on a Tuesday and then somebody would need me on a Friday. Um, I just didn't care. I just wanted to go out and play. I thought being there in that space was a lot about who I was, too. So it, it was all good. <laughs> B-Man, whatever you're saying, I don't know how true that was. I mean, I was okay, man. I don't like to brag. Nah, you got there, man. You definitely got there because <laughs> in the beginning, you weren't there, but it didn't take you long. Well, I appreciate that, man. That means a lot, man. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> oh, boy. Having been in the space and to picture it all, and I can see it perfectly, and I can also hear it perfectly. As always, it's great to see you, but thanks so much for coming in, giving us a little bit of indication about where Skinny has been in more ways than one. <laughs> it's a long way. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. Well, hey, I just do want to say one more time, B, thanks for joining us here on Stub Me Down and talking about the things that shaped me and, and it was specifically that place and you and our friends and, and family, really. It's quite honestly true. There's a, there's a family of people that come from there that that spider web reaches all across Baltimore for sure. There's a lot of people that came in contact with you and right other people there and me that we're still connected to in many, many ways, which is amazing. And Josh is part of that connection now too. So that might be hard for everybody to understand, but you know how friends work, man. One connects to the other. It's, it's, all, it's all a big puzzle. You know what? And and how many young bucks replaced you as young buck? Look at it that way, right? Right, B? Right. My name's at the bottom of that list somewhere. You're you're in there. You're in there. Yeah, you're in there. B man. Thanks, man. Love you. Great to see you. Yeah, glad to hey man. Thanks for having me and glad to rehash all that with you. It was fun. Skinny, awesome job. Man, this was a lot of fun. These last two episodes were so much fun to kind of dial back into um, a little bit about our personal lives, get to know us a little bit outside of the fact that we see a lot of awesome shows. But season two is on the horizon, and I can't friggin' wait to start getting back into some of the shows and taking a look at uh, some random shows we'll be pulling. Hey, before we go, Josh, I wanted to just point out a couple of people that we are connecting to as well as we connect the dots on these episodes. We have been making connections out in the community with purveyors of goods, uh, all kinds of cool stuff. The first person I just wanted to mention, uh, which by the way, I have your shirt. It's a sweet game hen shirt, which I'll get to you next weekend. I hope so. Oh, I'm getting the game hench one. Yes, you are. That's the one you said. That's been a while. Anyway, <laughs> I've already worn the antelope one. <laughs> At Fan Designs, ending with a Z 
Our friend Scott Mitchell has great reviews on the stuff that he sends out across the community. Great quality stuff, great shirts, great feel, great designs. Our friend Josh Kaplan over at Josh's Hot Dogs, we will not forget about you ever. And then also The Lot by Primal Soup, which is a community connection of an internet lot of all types of sellers and purveyors. I love my new vocabulary word, stuff that you would find on the lot that keeps us all connected in the community. So I just wanted to say that as a final goodbye. And thanks again to B-Man for coming on to Stub Me Down. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at stub underscore me underscore down. We'd love to hear from you have your takes or your criticisms about our show, but save that for maybe Twitter. <laughs> I run the Twitter account. <laughs> so talk to J-Dub. <laughs> Thanks a lot, everybody. We'll see you the next time you want to get out of your shitty seats and down to the path. Amen. Love you. Love you guys. Peace out. Peace out.